Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Welcome back to Author News Weekly. Thanks for joining us. I'm R.A.B.E. And I have with me, Nick Dacker. Sup? Jim Heskett. Oi, hoy. And Pippa Warner. <laughs> I like oi, hoy, though. Oi, hoy. That's awesome. Oy. I think I need that on a shirt or something. That's pretty good. That's oi, hoy, Author News Weekly. <laughs> we should make shirts before we go on our Vegas trip. Oi, yeah. hoy, Jim Heskett, and then Author <laughs> News Weekly on the back. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So what's going on, guys? How y'all doing this week? I'm okay. I'm getting over a sinus infection. Mm. It's not COVID officially, so I guess that's good. Mm. Did you get your brain scraped? To find I did. I, yeah. Well, I self-scraped, so it's probably part of the problem because I was like real dainty about it. You know? <laughs> like, let me just tickle one of the little hairs in there. That oh, uh, that's gotta be that's probably far enough. Just put yeah. it in a little tube. You gotta, you gotta shove it <laughs> you know, in. It's gotta, you know, it's far enough when you start remembering things from early childhood. That's how you know when it's <laughs> yeah, far it's enough true. back in. There. Well, you know, I got tested multiple times in Hawaii. You know, way before the vaccine and stuff. You know, I had to just get tested all the time to do stuff, and they would scrape your brain like no joke. It was yeah. way up there, and so. When I drove through the Walgreens to get the self-test thing, the pharmacist handed it to me and the stick's like a foot and a half long. And I'm like, so I just do this myself, you know? And she's like, yeah, just, you know, just a little bit, just put it in a little bit. And I was like, I don't know. There's a reason the stick is two and a half feet long, right? Like they wouldn't just make it that way on purpose. Yeah. I mean, on accident. I'm pretty sure you're supposed to keep going until it comes out your mouth. <laughs> and then you know that you've shoved it far enough. She was like, just, okay, hold it like this and then grab the palm of your other hand and just jam it. <laughs> Exactly. You remember that scene in Dark Knight, right? Oh. Where we make the pencil disappear. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, you know, that's our second Dark Knight mention in two weeks. I think it's a sign, guys. Maybe that's yeah. how people have been dying of COVID. They're saying, well, this is a COVID-related death. <laughs> and they're like, well, his, his brain exploded all over the car seat. <laughs> yes, with a COVID swab in his nose. I bet the, uh, the Walgreens gets to keep your car. <laughs> that's how that works yeah. Uh-huh. yeah they can keep my financing too oh right on right on well all right guys let's get into our first story of the week it's kind of got a racy title so if you got kids just be careful it's an erotica pioneer goes from hero to villains for dozens of authors And so, essentially what this is, is it's a tale of a woman who wrote erotica, right? And she ran a subscription spanking site called Bethany's Woodshed. And she was a hero and mentor to dozens of authors, most of them women, who she published for the first time through Blushing Books, a company that grew out of her original site. Now, it's coming to light that she allegedly has had some kind of predatory IP issues with some of these people. Miss Willis bought many books outright as work for hire, meaning blushing bought them outright and no royalties would be owed. But for others, she offered a seven-year term to license the work, but in some contracts, she claimed permanent and exclusive rights, meaning blushing could sell the books forever. So what do you guys think about this? Is this just a case of a bad apple or you think this is what a lot of indie publishing companies kind of tend towards this just reeks of a person who 
has great intentions, but doesn't understand how to run a business without digging into really nitty gritty details. I remember feeling some of these things way back, you know, decades ago when I was doing websites for people thinking that that was going to be my career. And this was in college, you know, which is my excuse. That's why I didn't know how to do any of this. But she talks about how some months she would make $3,000 and some months she would tell people that she owed money to the company for advances. It just sounds like she has been trying to toe the line and keep things inexpensive, which, you know, you can't fault somebody for that. But I don't know. This just smells of somebody who's not trying to rip people off, but inadvertently does because she just kind of doesn't want to treat this like a business. So that's my author beware. You're running a business. Stop pretending like you're not. And if you're publishing other people, for God's sake, stop pretending like you're not running a business. Have some transparency. Have some integrity. Hire a freaking bookkeeper. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If you're not good at remembering this stuff, hire someone to do it. Yeah. That's all I got to say about it. But See, the thing is, though, and now to be fair, this is from the New York Times. I got it from the passive voice. It's a very long article, but it kind of seems like she was trying to do some sketchy business also oh uh, yeah there's also the embezzlement and... charged with embezzlement that yeah part. and uh, let's see she said several former employees said that miss willis set up multiple kindle publishing accounts around 10 on one point which is a violation of amazon's one account per publisher and some former employees grew suspicious when they saw accounts open in author names and tax ids accounts in in nevada i don't know man there's some weird business going on Oh, yeah, definitely. I would agree with Nick that it sounds like she got in over her head, but it also sounds like she's someone who had a history of getting in over her head and then doing shady things to cover the fact that she'd gotten in over her head. And yeah. There's also another, there's also a point of so, view. Peppa, in this- what else I was thinking was <laughs> <laughs> really just- funny. We That's were waiting it. for it. We were waiting for it. For those yeah. listening, I don't think we explained, but Jim got mad because his mic was off and he didn't know it was off. So we just decided we'd treat him to a little. <laughs> I'm sorry. Little Jim, repeat. I help it, man. <laughs> no, it's what, this what is. What were you gonna say, man? They're talking about something else from a completely different phone call that had nothing to do with this. We're all just but... reading the script you gave us, man. This is what it says in there. <laughs> Pause for laughter. There's a line in here about halfway through this is writers who really want to get published are so easy to take advantage of. And there are more and more people out there to take advantage of. And this kind of reminds me of young writer Jim Heskett. You know, if you go back a time about 10 years ago when I was working on my second book and had nothing but rejections for my first book, I probably would have taken any contract that came my way. You know, probably even if I knew the terms were bad, because I would have been like, this is it. This is my chance to make it into the thing. And it's really sad that predatory publishers know that getting a publishing contract is like winning the lottery. And so even if winning the lottery is a bad deal, a lot of authors are going to jump at it. And so I don't know how to counsel people or advise people there. Just uh, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. That, but... Pyramid pay structures are very, very enticing. So, I mean, you get the same thing in competitive sports. It's, you know, Tiger Woods will win however many millions of dollars, and the person in second place will win about a tenth of that, and then everyone else gets peanuts. But people Sorry, really do. Gets get what? Peanuts. Oh, oh peanuts. <laughs> Sorry, I just I can't help myself. I'm, just, I'm going for our um, explicit content badge yes. every time. He said you put the wrong emphasis on the wrong mm. syllable. That's right. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Pyramid schemes aside, I think you guys are absolutely right about this. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. But I think that, you know, Jim, what you were talking about really resonated with me because I know there was a time in my own career 
even though I kind of knew I always wanted to self-publish. To clarify, I didn't know anything about either side, but I had written one book and it was just for my dad and me. And I didn't have, I was like, I'm not going to get a traditional contract. I don't want to do that. I'll just kind of release it on Kindle and see what happens. So I inadvertently fell into the self-publishing game, but I can attest to like the feeling of if I had gotten any publishing contract back then, I would have assumed that a contract was better than no contract, regardless of the terms. And so I think what we're all saying, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, new author out there listening, just because you have a contract does not at all mean that it's better than not having any contract. Mm -hmm. Because you can yep. go self-publish your stuff and immediately have better terms in some situations. That's kind of, I think, is that what you guys are kind of getting at yep. there? Because I don't want it to sound like, you know, you got to you gotta read some contracts, know what's good so that you can tell what's too good to be true. Because you may not know. You may not have ever seen a traditional publishing contract before. So it may sound great. You get 7% of royalties net after we pay for everything. <laughs> it's like, it, okay. Well, it's one of those things where you want a lawyer that does this stuff. And if you can't afford the lawyer, then you can't afford to sign the contract. Because hmm. you have no idea what they're oh, going to be. If you've got no idea, sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, at this point in the game, it, we're well along, you know, at least a decade and a half into this whole self-publishing as far as, you know, Kindle and all that comes has come around. So I think at this point, if you can't Google and quickly find a basic traditional publishing contract to compare yours to, you probably shouldn't be on the internet at all, I guess. Because <laughs> there's other, there's bigger problems, right? I mean, that's mm. such a easy thing to do these days. Yes, but also just to throw out there, there's stuff like Author Beware, which is a very well-known blog that takes reports of, of predatory authors. Nick disappeared suddenly um, <laughs> and puts them out there, does research, things like that. So always be Googling the name of the person who's offering you the contract. The smaller a publisher they are, the newer a publisher they are, probably try to find out what those people have been doing before that. Mm, yeah. And if you need advice, just email us and we'll be happy to look it over for 85% of your royalties for life. And mm. uh, I think for that every sounds book you ever for write. That, every book forever. That's a limited time offer, though. We're not offering that. <laughs> offering yes. such sweet terms for, for permanently. That's right. Just for you, my friend. I do for you because I like you, my friend. All right. Well interesting stuff the link is in the show notes if you want to read it it's a pretty massive article and maybe you can not be suckered by some of the stuff that goes on out there all right but hey before we move on is yeah. passive passive guy is a lawyer i believe right yeah, yeah. he is he or is. was yeah i think he is or was but this is a great if anyone hasn't heard of this website thepassivevoice.com i'll link to it in the show notes but this is a really good introductory i would say introductory only because I don't think it's something you have to keep up with every single week. But when I first got started, this website kept coming up as like legal contract, legal terms for publishing contracts, all that stuff is in here. And it gets pretty deep into the weeds, which is a really great firehose way of learning about our industry. So if you haven't read that blog, go check it out. It's cool. It's good stuff on here. Agreed. Agreed. Very good stuff. Very good stuff. All right, guys, let's go to our next story. It takes jacobinmag.com. It's about Facebook. It's not really about any of the stuff that happened this week, although we could touch on that if you guys want to. Which I makes mean, the article far more hilarious. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like, I had this article already in the wings, like, waiting, and then all the stuff this week kind of happened. Jim, I mm -hmm. think you kind of put a very fine point on all of Facebook's stuff this week with what you put on Facebook. Do you remember what it was? What did I say? Why is anyone surprised to find out that I was surprised that everyone was so shocked to discover that Facebook is an evil, soulless company? <laughs> right, exactly. Like, 
in other news, water's wet. <laughs> right, exactly. And well, so we've been knowing about this for years, so. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, do you ever feel complicit a little bit? Like, we just kind of all go along with, like, their shenanigans, you know? Like, we don't just... Why did we ever leave MySpace, right? Tom wasn't hating on us. Tom wasn't selling our information. He just wanted to be your first friend and hang out In retrospect, we did not appreciate Tom nearly enough. Did we deserve him? Because I'm not sure that we really did, you know? And that's why we lost MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. If I didn't have to use Facebook for my business, I would have deleted my account already. I yeah. agree. I hate it. Same here. Yep. If I didn't run ads on it, then it'd be gone. I know. It's tough. I 100% agree with you guys. And so in light of their whistleblower, I say whistleblower because I'm a little conspiracy minded about what this woman's true intentions are. In light of all the things that she said, this article is even scarier. It's Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse is a dystopian nightmare. And it says the Facebook founder intends to usher in a new era of the internet where there is no distinction between virtual and real and no logging off. Now, well, only if they can keep it on the internet though. Yeah. Cause how yeah. they failed to do that was hilarious. That was crazy, man. That was crazy. <laughs> so I guess this isn't really exactly related to books, but I kind of stretched a little bit thinking about it because a, it kind of made me think of ready player one. Like he seems like the guy that wants to make ready player one happen. And what kind of ramifications do you think this kind of has down the line for things like our advertising and things like selling books? If people are online all the time, you think there's like immersive kind of a like, let's play futurists a little bit here. And what kind of stuff do you think that this could mean? Nick, I know you're real like deep into this AI game. What do you think about all this metaverse business and how are you going to bend it to your, your um, business will? Yeah. So I know I've been thinking about this a lot. About a month ago, I saw an article about this metaverse idea. Um, and if you can look past the absolutely goofy, hilarious looking design of this, you know, first incarnation and assume that it's going to get better and it's something people want to use, I still don't think it's going to be a ready player one situation in that people are going to be in their Oculus headset or whatever, dressed up in their full immersive gear, jumping into this metaverse, preferring it to real life. Because I think we still have a ways to go with artificial intelligence and machine learning recommendations engines. We're getting pretty good, but we're not there yet. And I think before we get into a place where people prefer doing their day-to-day -day life in a metaverse or omniverse situation, there's a gap we have to, a chasm to cross, if you will. That said, just like we have now, there will be specific instances where this will be really compelling, like video gaming. I think we've been at the cusp of decent to good VR in gaming for many, many years. And I think we're finally getting ready to jump that chasm so that it's actually more fun and more immersive to be in VR for games. But general daily life, I don't see it happening in the next 10 years. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I'm excited or not. Uh, what do you think, Pippa? What do you think about all this? Are you going to plug the jack into the back of your head and just go into the matrix or are you hesitant about this? I'm immediately going to lose the jack. My toddler is going to run <laughs> off with it. <laughs> I will be spared. <laughs> I think it's probably just going to happen very slowly. Yeah, it's little things are going to come up, but it's difficult. There's a lot to digest in this article. And I don't want to be all doomsday about it. But also the fact is that we're streaming a lot more information right now than I think our brains were equipped to handle on the regular. And that's going to be an interesting addition to that issue. Okay. 
All right, Jim, what about Facebook's inherent soullessness makes the metaverse even scarier? Well, <laughs> there's a line in here somewhere where it says something about how instead of this future we envisioned that we would be all living on an internet commune, the internet turned into a shopping mall, a digital shopping mall mm. is what the internet has turned into. I don't, I'm not quite the futurist that Nick is, but I do like technology and I like thinking about what's to come. And I always think about the magazine Popular Mechanics or maybe it was, no, it was Popular Science. And I remember cause my dad was a subscriber for like 40 years and he had this issue that came out. This is going somewhere, I promise. He had an issue that came out in the year 2000 and it was like looking back on 25 years of progress because Popular Science had an issue in 1975 where they said, here's what we think the world is going to look like in the year 2000. And then in the year 2000, they looked at that article and compared and contrasted. And in 1975, they thought in 25 years, most of the technology was going to be about travel because that's where the technological boon was in the mid 20th century, you know, cars, airplanes, subways, faster trains. So that was what it was like in the year 2000, we will have briefcase motorcycles and mm -hmm. flying cars and tubes underground to shoot you where you need to go. It was all about getting from A to B faster. But then in the year 2000 article, they said none of that happened because technology shifted from transportation. It became less about getting from A to B quicker and reducing the need to go from A to B. Mm -hmm. There's a completely unexpected shift in the industry that in the future became all about communication and information sharing instead about travel and transportation. And so all that to say, 20 years from now, this isn't going to look anything like what we think it's going to look like today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you're probably right. I wonder what that divergence could be for us, you know, like you were saying, from transportation to communication. I wonder what that could look like. I don't know. I don't know, man. It kind of spooks me a little bit, man. I get a little scared. You know, it's October. I'm already a little scared about things. So this is kind of terrible. Spoopy so. season. Exactly. Spoopy. All right, guys. Let's go to our next story. It's from Sifwa science fiction and fantasy writers of america of which i am not a member because i don't write science fiction or fantasy but i know that they have a lot of good stuff to talk about and in keeping with our conversation last week about villains i found this article to be you know kind of interesting maybe a little surface but surface is okay sometimes so the it's by a guy named michael j moore i'm not sure if it's the bowling for columbine guy mm -hmm. but it probably says, you think so probably I agree. I agree. He's moonlighting. I assume this is what he's doing now. Walking <laughs> for Sifwa. <laughs> the surprisingly youthful picture in the author section. Fahrenheit oh. 911. How about Sifwa blog? <laughs> the title is Think Like a Horror Writer to Create Better Villains. It says you write speculative fiction for the same reason you read or watched your entire life. Something inside of you that craves relatable characters overcoming adversity. It's your inner hero, yada, yada, yada. But what about the bad guy? Every element in good storytelling exists for one of two reasons. It either builds tension as a conflict or it releases it as resolution. Sorry, thinking about the Matrix. Genre fiction often utilizes an antagonist to build its tension. So he's got the three R's. And you know what? There's three of you guys. There's the three R's. Oh, this is a brilliant idea. How about each of you take one of these and see if you have anything to add about it? So, Pippa, the first thing is make your antagonist real. What are your tips to make your antagonist real? Uh, On the spot. On the spot. Think, <laughs> do think some of writing as things. them. Do some writing from their point of view, even if you're okay. not going to put it in the book. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
I feel that. I feel that. So you kind of get in their head and get to learn, yeah. learn about them a little more. Yeah, That's you're smart. learning about the like everything in their life from their just internal thoughts and motivations to like the aspects of where they live and what that means in terms of tactile sensations and stuff like that. And that really does bring them down to earth. Oh, that's pretty good. Any of you guys want to piggyback off of hers before you get your own assignment, your own homework? Oh, I would just say that I love what she said right from the villain's point of view, but I could never write from the villain's point of view and not put it in the book because my words are precious babies and every one of them deserves to be read and seen by all every single one actually so like when jim and i will co-write he'll delete a lot so pretty much you know he'll write a first draft and then i'll go in and add and do a second draft and then he goes and deletes what i've written and then turns it back in and i get mad and so i just put in like the word that and instead of like any verb I just make them all began to do the verb, which is great. He loves it. And so I just really think words are precious. And I will hit that 80,000 word mark deadline no matter what, even if that means that I have to do that thing that he hates. <laughs> that I have to began to add in words. Anyway, that's all I add to it. I love that's I do what Pippa says all the time. It's easier for me because I write in third person point of view for most of my stuff. And so I can easily add in some villain scenes and have them nefariously doing things in the background. Does anyone else have a whole bunch of scenes that they write for the book that like end up not going in? Or... Oh, gross. You're hurting me. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Stop it. No, Never. I do. No, they end up being short stories. I can't not use them. They have to be published. Otherwise, I feel like I'm wasting my time. Yeah, no, it happens to me. Like I'll write things and then I'll kind of read over them and just be like, this really isn't doing anything here. Like it's not advancing anything. It's just kind of a waste. And then I'll hack it out. But I never erase it. It still lives in a file on my computer. You know? Oh, no, I don't erase them, but there's some that I write without even the intention to put them in the book. And then I call them my own headcanon for my series. And people are like, but you're the author. Mm. I don't know. It's not in the main canon. I, don't I have a headcanon, but it's a different thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Explicit rating. So next up, let's let Nick calm down after his headcanon a little bit. Jim, mm -hmm. what do you do to make your antagonist really, really menacing? Well, I like what it says here in the second sentence or the first sentence, not just menacing to the world. This malevolent force should be particularly menacing to your hero or heroine, because if you've done your job right, then the hero should have some kind of personal involvement with the stakes. Um, it should you know, remind your hero of the case that got away from them before or give them a chance to, you know, redeem them from something or personally affect them in some way. And that's the best way to engage your reader is by doing that. Now, when it comes to the antagonist, to make them really menacing, I think the best advice I could give here is be careful. <laughs> you know, be menacing, but be careful because it's very, very easy to venture into cartoony territory. Mm. You know, the antagonist is opposed to whatever the protagonist wants. And one way that you really establish those moral boundaries is that you have your antagonist do something that the hero would never do. You know, that's one thing you see in movies all the time and in stories all the time is where the villain gets away by putting an innocent in danger and then the hero has to stop the chase to save the innocent, right? There's a clear choice. The antagonist will put the innocent in danger. The protagonist will not let the innocent be in danger. Hmm. So as long as I think you establish that clear moral opposition in their choices to the villain as opposed to the protagonist, then I think it can make them really menacing. Is the question how to make them really menacing? Yeah, not just menacing. That's really easy. Everybody menacing. can do menacing. Oh, also, and if it's a male, give them a mustache. 
so he can twirl about it. Twirly, yeah. Honestly, yes. a woman with a mustache that she can twirl is also, you know, it's, it adds a certain surreal quality. Okay. Outside the box, I like yeah. it. Set my story in a carnival in the 20s. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Matilda right. with Trunchbull as a mustached Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> or, or she's just wearing a fake one and mm. like, yeah. <laughs> I could dig it. I could dig she it. She puts okay. it on anytime she glowers. That's mm. right. Glouts. Mm. <laughs> All right. Last one, Mr. Thacker. It's really know your antagonist. Now, I know that Pippa kind of touched on that. Writing from their perspective could give you an insight. Oh, it's okay. Writing from their perspective can give you an insight into their head. But what do you know? Because when you write in third person and you write your antagonist, what are you doing so the chapters feel as awesome as they do for your protagonist? Mm. Well, I mean, we were joking about the word really, the adverb in there, but that's really it. I mean, if you make it real, if you make it realistic, you're going to have a better time writing any character. And I know that sounds like the most obvious thing ever, but it goes back to, I think we talked about it last week even, but it goes back to giving your antagonists or antagonists a story that we can really buy into. We can believe, we can almost root for them because we believe in their cause, even though we may not agree with the end. You know, the means don't necessarily justify the end or the ends don't, whatever, you know, the, you know what I'm saying? And so I think if we can do that with an antagonist and do it really well, we can say, hey, I don't really like what you're doing, but I know why you're doing it. And I think I'm okay with that part of it. But dang, I wish you didn't do it that way because that's what the protagonist is going to fight against. And if you can have that from the beginning of the book, I think whatever you write as the villain will just be real. It'll come across as real. It'll come across as better. But or I don't know. I, I, I don't you know can also about have, it, it doesn't have to be the ends that you agree with. It can also be the means that they are very like the protagonist and sure, they just yeah, went yeah. a completely different way with it. You're like, oh, I was on board, like you're talking, and I'm on board, and that's cool, and this is all great. And then, like, oh, you went to the bad place with it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good times. Good times. Well, okay. I think that that was good, guys. I think you guys, it's weird, man, because it's like I ask you these questions and you guys always have good answers. It's like you write books or something, you know? It's like you know what you're doing. Really interesting. Like really that. interesting. It's kind of like really that you guys are writers that know what you're writing, really. Really? Okay. Good times. Well, all right, guys. I think that brings us up to a good stopping place. You guys got anything you want to add about any of the stories? No, doesn't look like it. All right, guys. Well, thanks for coming this week. I appreciate your guys' input very much. For all of us at Author News Weekly, I am R.A. McGee saying this meeting is over. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>